Anyway, well, welcome back from our little uh, Advent hiatus. We're probably only going to... I don't know what we'll do once uh, quilting starts up. I'm still thinking about that. But uh, at least for the next three weeks, we'll be uh, doing our normal Wednesday 9 o'clock routine. Um, so, here we go. Uh, first of all, I guess I just want to ask you, what do you guys have for breakfast? A banana. That's it? Wow. Cereal. I had, I had, I had some fruit. And I had a piece of ham and a piece of toast and some cooked apples. Okay, you're the big breakfast eater around here. Yeah, yeah. normally I would be too, but I'm trying not to eat so much. Cleo just eats banana, and I think, okay, maybe I can survive on just a banana. Oh, I went crazy and ate eggs and sausage. Usually, I just eat cereal or something. Sure. Yeah, fair enough. You know what you had? I had uh, a piece of toast, two hard-boiled eggs. And uh, it was school morning, so those are always kind of crazy. You, you eat what you get in your mouth, and then I forgot to eat more before I came to work. So normally I ate a bigger breakfast. There's lots of food in there if you get hungry. <laughs> oh, exactly. I'm not worried about not eating today. But uh, well, why I ask? Let's just take Rhonda's very simple breakfast of a banana. Where'd that banana come from? I have no idea. <laughs> Well, I assume you got it at a store. Walmart. 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 And that's my kid's final answer at this point. It's at the store. That's where it comes from. But, of course, you know that's not where it comes from. Where does the store get it? Well, with Walmart, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> right. Obviously, it got... There, I don't know any banana groves nearby. Let's put it that way. Um, chances are high this came from closer to the equator slash southern hemisphere, which means um, it's grown in a tree in another country, and it had to get here by somebody picking that thing um, out in another part of the world. It had to get put onto a truck, transported to an airport, and logged through all kinds of who knows what kind of systems they do for quality control, and then uh, stamped with a nice Chiquita banana logo, assuming you got Chiquita or Dole, who knows. And uh, flown across the half the world to arrive at some local shipping facility where it got loaded up by warehouse workers onto a truck driven by some truck driver or other down to Walmart where employees dutifully uh, unloaded the truck and other employees dutifully stocked the shelves. And assuming you didn't use the automatic self-checkout, some cashier did your uh, ring up. That's a lot of steps to get a banana into your mouth in the morning, isn't it? That's a lot of time and a lot of people at work to make that banana get into that very satisfying moment of your day where you're still probably wondering, do I also need a bowl of cereal? Because <laughs> that may not have been enough. The point I, I've raised that is obviously you guys are older than my kids. You know stuff doesn't just magically appear on the store shelves. It took a lot of logistics and therefore a lot of people involved in bringing it from point A to point B. And we didn't even talk about the farming process. We just talked about end product banana to end point of delivery. And who knows how many employees' hands that had to pass through and how many man hours of work went into getting your banana onto your table. Now, I don't say this just to talk about the wonders of the modern economy where you don't even have to think about any of that. And you pay so, just 44 cents an ounce, a pound at Walmart for that thing, despite all of that work. Um, I use it to talk about the fact that, think about all the steps that God took to bring that banana 
onto your plate. Because uh, what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, and probably for the next couple of weeks, is this uh, idea of vocation. Um, I'm sure you've heard the word before. Probably when you hear vocation, the first thing that jumps to mind is um, a job, because that's how we use it in modern lingo. What's your vocation? Oh, well, I'm a newspaper worker. Oh, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, well, I was this or that or truck driver, whatever. When we're talking about vocation, what we're actually talking about in this context is the very scriptural teaching that um, God is providing for his creation. And by the way, he ordinarily does not do it in extraordinary ways. When God provides your banana, Rhonda, did you wake up, open the cabinet that was empty the night before, and lo and behold, the cabinet never ran dry? <laughs> no. God can miraculously cause food to arise. There's plenty of instances in the scripture where this happens. Feeding of the 5,000. There's the widow whose jar never ran empty. There's the Israel in the wilderness. Food just miraculously appears, right? God is capable of it. That's not ordinarily how it gets done. And sometimes when we think about this, even if we're brought to think about the long process behind said banana, we don't think the way we probably ought to that God's hand is really the one behind it. We think about the people's hands behind it. But what we're talking about when we're talking about vocation is that God uses every single one of those people in that process to do the work of providing you your breakfast this morning. Vocation is the idea that God calls people to specific places and roles in life in order to provide for all of the things that he provides to his creation. And again, this is not an by extraordinary means. God ordinarily works through ordinary means. In fact, if you think about it, what does the word ordinary mean? We usually think plain. And if you looked in the dictionary, that would certainly be one of the words. Technically, it comes from the word order. That is to say, God works through a predictable order he has established and not outside of the order that he has established. It is ordinary in the fullest sense of the word. God has arranged the world and people's relationships to function in a routine, predictable way, and God works through the people that he puts in these routine, ordinary positions to bring about the care of his creation. And it's not just the food on your table, by the way. After all, how did you come to be in this world? I assume it wasn't that, lo and behold, your parents walked in and boom, the stork had dropped this blanket with a baby on it. And who knows where that stork got the baby? Miracle. Um, we'll keep it PG here, but obviously you know how it works. You have a mom and a dad who, birds and the bees, there you were. Through the work of ordinary human relations, God called you into existence. Um, when, you're taught, when, you pray, when we pray for healing at church, all those names on the prayer list, certainly we pray and it would be nice if, say, um, our, the people suffering from cancer went to the hospital next time and poof, suddenly their tumor was inexplicably gone, right? God can does, do that. There are no doubt accounts where God has done that. But ordinarily, that's not how God does it. He does it through all of the chemo treatments that people go through, all of the radiation therapy, um, where the tumor, God reduces the size of the tumor through the means of these uh, doctors doing their uh, 
work and bringing a measure of healing. Almost everything that happens in this life, this is the doctrine of vocation basically, is God calls people to these ordinary roles in order to provide some kind of blessing to one another. That's simply stated, a pretty simple thing to think about, but deeply profound, something we're often not attentive to, and which really shapes almost everything about how we experience the world around us. Because as we'll see, this gives a hugely deep sense of meaning and purpose, even to the most, word up in our mind, apparently mundane and apparently uh, unpleasant tasks that people are called to perform. Because as we'll see, they are quite literally called to perform them. Uh, let's, let's dive into this. First of all, let's talk specifically what we mean when we say the word vocation. Um, again, we know how it's come to be used in uh, secular terminology, but the word itself actually comes from a Latin word, like so many of our other words, vocatio. Do you happen to know what the word vocatio means? It literally means calling. And again, there's, we talk in that way often enough. We say, well, my calling is to uh, be a truck driver. My calling is to be a teacher. My calling is to be a nurse. And usually what we mean is we just feel like that's the place we should be going, putting our time and our talents because we have a knack for it and a desire to do it. What we mean when we say calling is the very specific sense of there is somebody who is actually issuing a call. Somebody is calling out to you to say, this is what I want you to do. Who do you suppose is the one issuing the call in this whole scenario? God. God, yeah. God is the one, the caller, who calls you to do, to fulfill a specific role or some kind of duty or task. <clears throat> That's the doctrine of vocation. God calls you overtly, um, not necessarily by actually giving you a dream or having his voice boom out from heaven, but he calls you um, place you into the various roles and duties you have. So that your duties and your roles aren't just self-appointed things about, well, what did I want to be in when I grew up? I guess I wanted to be this. No doubt that's how you experience it, but the fact remains that by putting you into those relationships, God himself has issued you a call to fulfill some kind of purpose, some kind of role in his order. So that your task is not just whatever meaning you give to it. It's a purpose and a uh, function given by God himself, whereas we'll see God himself is at work through what you do to do his work of providing for creation. Let's, let's dive into scripture a little bit about this. Turn to Psalm 127, which I guess you would say is one of the, I mean, there's lots of places we could go, but this is one of the, the most useful places to go. And I'm sure you've probably heard bits of this psalm before. Somebody want to read Psalm 127. It's a short one, the whole thing for us. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gates. 
Now, uh, let's, let's just break this down a little bit. Verse 1 and 2 paint a pretty profound picture here. Who is the one that really gives success to the building of any project? The Lord. It just straightforwardly says, no matter how hard you're working at a thing, unless the Lord is actually the one working there to do it, your work is pointless. It's not going to come to anything. So right off the outset, the assertion of this psalm is that when we're building a house, it's really the Lord who is building the house. If there is any success in any of our endeavors, it has to have the Lord at work behind it. Otherwise, we have no chance of success. Um, and this goes more than just saying, well, you can do whatever you want, but God has to be behind you to bless it, to bring it to success. It's not about you to put your hand to whatever you want to. You'll see if God's behind it by whether it gets success or not. That's not what this is asserting. It's going a lot further. Because after all, what does verse 3 say? Where do children come from? Sons are a heritage from the Lord. This verse talks very explicitly as though God is not just the blesser of the work, the one who gives what we set our hands to do success or frustration. This one speaks as though God is actually the one doing the work. It's not just that we try to have kids and God may or may not bless that work of ours. It's that God is the one who gives the heritage completely and utterly. So what Psalm 127 is asserting is this very um, deep statement that when you are working, God is the one who is actually doing the work through you. He calls you to the work. He moves you to do the work. He blesses the work to give it success and brings it to fruition. The doctrine of vocation is not, therefore, about what we, primarily about what we should be doing, Doctrine of vocation is primarily about God as the doer of all things. He's the one who provides. And it then points us to our role, as, and this is a really neat thing, as not people who more or less succeed in doing what God would like us to do, but rather as more strongly, kind of you might say, the work gloves of God. When God gets to work, he puts on gloves to do it. And you are the things he wears. Um, Luther had this nice little statement of saying, when you do your work that you have been given to do, you are a mask of God. You are just a front that God wears as the one who is really doing the work. So that, for instance, when you were raising your children, God was raising your children through you. You were quite literally doing the Lord's work which is a pretty tremendous thing to say. It's not just about, um, here's a command I gave you, let's see how well you do it. It's, I am going to be working through you to do this. You are the ordinary means of God's providence. All right, does that make sense? By the way, I said this word providence. What do we mean here? Um, I like to always break this down into two words. Um, providence. So it's basically a statement of how God provides and cares for his creation. Oftentimes when we say providence, we sometimes mean God's mysterious control over all things, that who can ever understand how God works? God works in mysterious ways, right? 
There's an aspect to that. But as it turns out, when we're talking providence, the way the scripture talks, God usually doesn't work in mysterious ways. He works through very concrete, ordinary, obviously discernible ways. When you change your baby's diaper, guess what? God was providing for your child through you. You were doing God's work. God was not working mysteriously. He was working in the very ordinary, very obvious purpose of making sure your baby doesn't get a rash <laughs> or an infection and has a clean set of drawers. And that is God's work. How many of you, now most of you are retired these days, correct? I know you very recently were retired. I know farmers never really retire. But uh, by and large, you, you had what you would call your primary job for a lot of years, right? Whether that was working out in the world or maybe being a stay-at-home mom, right? By all means, anybody who says that's not work, <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. Exactly. My wife will slap them silly. <laughs> So often we're taught to look at our job as a means to another end. Basically, um, I do this so that I can get some money. I don't like what I do, maybe I like what I do, but the big point is I'm just trying to do something else and this has nothing to do, if, if I like it, great, if I don't, you know, just get, on, get it over with. There's no greater purpose, my work is meaningless except to get money to feed my family. Or, boy, I hate this menial work of changing diapers, cooking meals. It just feels like I'm doing the same pointless, unappreciated, non-impactful work over and over again every day. And my kids never say thanks. <laughs> What's the point? Well, taking the doctrine of vocation, you can say, for instance, your work was anything but meaningless as a stay-at-home mom. Even the chores that you thought were just routine, pointless, thankless, no real impact. That was nothing less than the almighty God reaching down into your household to do work that he has established from the beginning of all eternity to do through you in part of his whole overarching plan to care for and move creation forward. You, it was not pointless, even at its most frustrating and seemingly insignificant times. It was nothing less than the hand of God at work through you. Same for your job that you might have hated some days and thought, what's the point? It's just me means to an end. It may have been a means to providing for your family, and that's nothing to sniff at, but it was also God's means of providing all kinds of service to countless other people who no doubt never recognized it and never thought about it. I don't think about the people who brought me my banana for breakfast. <laughs> Whether I recognize it or not, think about how huge of an impact every person in that step of the process has on not just your breakfast, but the breakfast of so many other people in Effingham, all across the county, all across the state. This is the way, and not only is it just impactful in the sense that it provides lots of bananas to a lot of people, but it is, again, they are hands of God working to do God's holy work of sustaining and providing for his creation. This, by the way, has not always been obvious to people throughout uh, church history. Um, before the Reformation, it was believed that uh, if the only vocations out in the world were vocations like mine. God's only really calling you when he's calling you to religious life 
when he's calling you to be a priest, a monk, or a nun. Total devotion to God in all you say and do, those kinds of callings are the real holy callings, the real work of God. All the other stuff, you know, it's good. It has its place, but it's also really worldly, and it probably destroys your, and interrupts your relationship to God. You can do all those and still be saved, but all things being equal, they move you into the world and away from God. The Reformation came along and completely, um, as it, re -under as it uh, rediscovered and reasserted the f primary teaching of Scripture, that it's not our works, not our religious works that bring us closer to God, but God's work through Christ. It also rediscovered the way that God actually works through the world, as Scripture points out. That it is not just the people who appoint works for themselves, like monks and nuns who are doing the work of the Lord. In fact, they are doing the opposite of the work of the Lord. Because they're just cooking up things for themselves to do that God never commanded or desired. But it's the people on the ground. The farmers, the brewers, the judges, the truckers, the uh, nurses. All of these people are really the ones who are doing work of the Lord. And when they recognize their work properly are even brought closer to the Lord through their work precisely because they recognize that their work is simply God's work through them, and they thank and praise God for this opportunity to serve. So it reoriented the entire world when this, new, this teaching came to light about how you serve God and what it means to be a faithful Christian. This is why you might have heard pastors say, if you want to be a good and faithful Christian... Go and be a good and faithful mother. <laughs> Go and be a good and faithful dad, a husband, worker, so on and so forth. Because that's what God commands, and that's what he calls you to do. And that's not only how you serve others. That is literally how you act as God's servants and God's instruments in the world. Let's also turn, I gave you this sheet in front of you. I need to grab one. Where it starts out to uh, bishops and uh, I pass this out because it's a nice summary statement to, to illustrate that this is not just a Lutheran idea about, boy, wouldn't it be nice if this is how God works? This is very much a scriptural teaching. At the end of all the catechisms, the last section after it talks about Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession, and the Lord's Supper, there's one more section there called the Table of Duties. Did you ever study that in confirmation? Do you remember? I know it was a long time ago. We did. I know we, I don't think we did growing up because it was so much work to just get through the six chief parts that we always kind of shunted the other one to the side. Um, but the table of duties is this other section in there where basically it just says, um, here are some various passages respecting our various duties that God puts us into in the world. And it just basically quotes the scriptures in a lot of basic ways that scripture talks about various fundamental relationships that we have. And so many of the New Testament letters, by the way, just kind of go down the list as they go. Ephesians starts out, you might remember, husbands and wives, fathers and uh, mothers, children, Rulers and citizens, uh, workers and masters. It just goes in that order. And that's not the only letter to do that. And that's not an accident. It's the recognition by the apostles that God has actually set up basic orders in life and called people to live out specific roles in those orders. 
Um, and so here's just, I'll give you, I'll, we'll just go through some of these things. Um, for instance, God has laid out very specific commands to bishops, pastors, and preachers, basically anyone who's in the office of the ministry, and also to hearers of the word, people who are, so to speak, um, under the preaching and the ministry of these ministers. And it spells out what pastors are supposed to do and not supposed to do. That's the basic shape of the calling God gives to pastors as a vocation. By the way, it's not just pastors in the church who have a calling from God. The way this goes, everyone in the congregation has a specific calling as a part of the congregation. Every Christian has a vocation as a Christian with respect to the pastors. Um, pastors, obviously, I'll just we'll just read a couple of these. Um, 1 Timothy 3, 2-5, the overseer, that is a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with the proper respect. Um, he must not be a recent convert, or he may be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy messages that has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refuse those who oppose it. Those are just some passages where God very clearly, through the apostles, lays out, this is what the calling of a pastor is. This is what they are to be like and not be like. This is what they are to do and abstain from doing. <clears throat> by the same token, there is plenty of passages that say the other side of the relationship. Um, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Um, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, and so on and so forth. Um, point being here, there's two vocations in the church that God has just arranged as a foundational order for how life as the church, as the people of God, goes. Those who are called to speak the word of God and those who hear the word of God, who are called to hear the word and also see to it that the uh, person who preaches is able to continue to support himself and preach from that <laughs> ministry. And then it goes down the list outside of the church into other aspects of our life. Civil government. We won't go into too much detail about that because we spent a whole series on civil government. But basic. But it goes back to Romans 13, 1 through 4, which we've studied several times, where basically it asserts government is called by God. They are his servants to do his will in restraining evil and promoting good civil order. And then it goes to the other side of that equation. Citizens, people who are subject to the ruling authorities, they have a vocation too in their relationship to the governing authorities. I'll just read a couple of those. You know some of these. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God. It's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Um, I'll skip down. I urge then, first of all, that prayers, requests, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. Um, so again, as citizens, you are supposed to, people are called under their political masters to submit and obey and to the extent that it's possible, show them respect, honor, and deference. 
I'm never even supposed to pray for them. That's just a basic calling God gives to all people who are under a governor. Then he goes on to talk about, then there's others, callings for husbands. who are specifically called to, again, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, on the other side of the equation, wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, well, by the way, there's a lot to talk about there. We're going to talk about specific vocations more next week. We'll probably start with husbands and wives. But my point here basically is, again, to simply assert, this is not something that Luther just cooked up as a great idea or that Lutherans thought this is a great sounding thing to think of God working through the world. This is just the implication that, script, that God actually calls people to do these things and sets them into these relationships for the purpose of dealing with one another in particular ways so that he provides for the people in the lives of those he has called. And we could go down the list, but I think we've made the uh, basic point. I'll just uh, I'll list the list. I won't read the verses. There's... <coughs> a calling to be parents. By virtue of the fact that God gives you children, you, God calls you to be a parent. By virtue of the fact that God gives you a governor, you are called to be a citizen. By virtue of the fact that you are installed as a governor, God calls you to be a governor. By virtue of the fact that I am called to be a pastor, God calls me to be a pastor. By virtue of the fact that you have an employer, you are a worker who is to submit to your master and do your duty faithfully, by virtue of the fact that you are set in a, a position of authority over somebody else as a manager, supervisor, so forth, you are called by God to supervise your people diligently and to be fair, kind, and understanding with them. Um, youth even have a special calling from God to be submissive to people who are older. This is where the common wisdom, respect your elders, comes from, a calling by God to all the youth to have respect and deference to the people who are older than them. Widows have a specific calling. Everyone also has a general calling to love each other as themselves. Point being, it does not matter who you are or where you live, God has given you at least one calling. And through that calling, and all of the callings you might have, God himself is at work to sustain not only your life, but the life of people around you and the welfare of them. Now, uh, you may have noticed that uh, there's, there's kind of a, a certain logic to this table of duties, and I'm going to focus on that a little bit. Three major areas of life where God gives these callings. There's, um, of course, the calling to uh, pastors and hearers, so there's this basic sphere of what you might call the church, then there's callings to people like um, the uh, husbands, wives, children, mothers, fathers, so on and so forth. You might call the household. And then, of course, to uh, rulers and governors, what you might call the political order. Now, uh, a lot of people have noticed this. Uh, Luther, for instance, was one of them. And he, he looked at this and thought, you know, it seems like God has actually not just given 
a whole bunch of callings that we could lump under these headings, it seems like God has actually arranged the world to operate with these three basic kinds of estates or spheres. Like, this is the order of all of life in the world for virtually everyone. Um, so that under the church, of course, is the whole spiritual order of how God actually relates to and redeems his creation. Also, by the way, the uh, here's a little tidbit for you. Give you some Greek there. Oikonomia is actual is the, the uh, Greek word for household. Oikonomia. Does that kind of sound like another word you know? <laughs> like know. It sounds an awful lot like the word economy. And there's a reason for that. Because that's where the word economy comes from. Literally, oiko means house or home, and nomia means law or rule. So it was basically a word for saying the order or rule of the house. Economy is the same basic thing, is the word that comes from that. Why did it come from? Well, because the economy in ancient times was the household. <laughs> Your family and all the servants that you accrued and uh, paid to uh, produce things for your household and to give the excess to, and to sell the excess either for your uh, noble or to other people was the economy was basically an outgrowth of the household. And so that's where we get the word economy. And that's also why, incidentally, um, Lutherans have not only included family relationships under God's house, uh, God's estate of the household, <laughs> but also included things like worker-master relationships. That that wasn't actually part of the political order, it is fundamentally part of the household order. Just as a little interesting thing. Political order, you could probably guess what that's all about. Uninterestingly, I just want to say that uh, the argument was made by Luther, that this is actually, these three estates aren't just handy ways of thinking about the world, these are actually institutes of God himself. And just to give you, a, we're going to kind of take a quick detour, go to Genesis chapter 2. I'm just pointing out here, this is Luther's statement. I'm not saying necessarily that we have to agree with it. But this is where he, uh, he kind of took these out as this is the base, these are the three basic spheres by which God rules and cares for creation. The church obviously is caring for the creation in the sense of trying to redeem creation. That's the order by which he saves people and brings them to eternal life. The household is the fundamental order of life in this world, how we manage, how we relate to each other, how we grow and get educated and work to support one another. And the government, the political order, is its own kind of special thing we'll talk about in just a second. First of all, he says that, uh, well, let's just read this. Verse, let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 16 through 17. Somebody want to read that for us? Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. All right. Now again, I'm just going to preface. This is just the way Luther <clears throat> took this. It's, it's a neat idea. I'm not going to say this is clearly the, what was happening here. But basically, Luther says this was the institution of the church. The church was the first order of God's creation, the first institution, and the most fundamental. Because what God does here is speak his word to man by which man learns the true worship of God. He gives him the command, don't eat of this. 
and you will live. So that the tree becomes, so to speak, the altar at which people will worship. And Adam becomes the man who both hears the word and now is responsible to pass on the word of God by which you come to a right, you stand in a right relationship with him to what will soon to be the rest of humanity. And it's even more fundamental, Luther says, than the household because who, who's the only person who exists at this point? Adam. There is no Eve right now. There is no household. There is only Adam and God and the right relationship between them based on the word of God being spoken and received and heard and trusted, which is the church. Next verse. Who wants to read uh, that one? Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help pursuit for him. All right. And uh, then, of course, what follows is the creation of Eve. Um, and the subsequent uniting of Adam and Eve into one flesh. And Luther says, and there, what you have is God instituting the household, whereby man and woman are joined together for the bearing and raising of children to fulfill this divinely given obligation to be fruitful and multiply. And in that household relationship of the family and all of the families that will proceed out of it comes also all of the great blessings of education, um, and useful labor to support one another in the great family, and uh, so and all of the relationships of oversight and supervising and laboring and so on and so forth, by which the household would sustain itself. And I want to be I want to be clear about what uh, Luther's point here is, and it's it's actually a helpful point, even if you don't quite agree with. Well, that's clearly what God was saying here. It does point out the very scriptural truth that at the foundation and center of God's creation of mankind, um, obviously, is the hearing of the word. That's fundamental no matter how you spin Genesis. But subsequent to that is the fundamental relationship between human beings, specifically rooted in the spousal relationship and the child-parent relationship. Every other aspect of life both flows out of that fundamental to those fundamental two human relationships and is directed towards promoting the life of those fundamental two relationships. Let's just go to modern day, even without taking all of the theology. Why do most people get jobs? They earn money and support themselves, and especially once they get married, it's not about supporting myself, it's about supporting the family. The whole point of the job, the primary point of the reason I get the job, is to support the family. It's not the only reason, obviously. But the work primarily redounds to supporting and strengthening the family so that I can carry out my obligations of educating my children to raise them up to be good people who will therefore be good parents and good spouses and good neighbors to other spouses and children and individuals. Does that make sense? That is also one of the reasons why we should always be suspicious as Christians of moves to undermine or remove the family from the center of human social relationships. Because the family is the created center of human social relationships, second only to, although it is second to, the primary relationship that we have with each other through our relationship with God as the church. Makes sense? What about government? I'll just say, Luther changed his mind a lot by on and off. 
Um, sometimes he thought it was something God created before the fall, although I, I, I don't know where he pointed for that. He just kind of thought that sometimes. Sometimes he, he, and I believe this is probably more accurate, precisely because what, is Rome, what does Paul say about the political order? It's there to restrain evil, right, and promote good, compel good order. Um, you don't really need to be restraining evil before the fall, do you? Because there's no evil to restrain. There's only church and house, it seems to me like. But go to Genesis 9, verse 6. And suddenly, after the flood, when things have gone literally to hell in a handbasket because everybody's just doing whatever they want all the time after the fall, nobody's there to restrain them, um, and things just fall apart, God re-blesses Noah with the same blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve in verse 1 of chapter 9, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then a little further down, in verse 5 and 6, uh, or sorry, verse 6, God adds this new provision, among a couple of other new provisions God adds into this new world that God has cleansed. Want to read that for us, 9 verse 6? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And this, uh, sometimes, I think Luther correctly says, Genesis 9, 6, God establishes the political order for the purpose of restraining the evil of man that has now spilled over into nearly uncontrollable ways. So that the, happened today. Well, it's, it's happened ever since. And therefore, God has raised up governors as a post-lapsarian emergency institution, at the very least. We can argue about maybe it was pre-fall, but it's certainly post-fall. Its primary function, its vocation, is to deal with the fact that people are always overflowing in evil by punishing it. They are God's agents of wrath, as 1 Peter asserts, and as Romans 13 both asserts. God affects his wrath through these to limit, restrain, and punish overt social evil, evil that we do to one another. And so it's a legitimate calling from God. And by the way, therefore, since all of these spheres are institutes of God, um, and God gives you role, calls you to specific roles within each of these estates, the Christian can and should carry them out when he has that, when he or she has that calling in good conscience. Therefore, um, well, we'll get to this in just a second, but uh, just in more detail. Therefore, obviously, as a member of the church, as an individual who stands before God by the grace of Christ, I know Christ's command, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount. What do I do when someone slaps me on the cheek? I turn the other one. If somebody steals my cloak, what do I do as a Christian? Give my, my tunic also. Give my tunic also. Do I turn around and take it on myself to beat him up? No. As a Christian, I am called as well, to let God deal with his evil and me only wish him well and allow suffer evil rather than perpetuate evil. Awful hard. Oh, it is awfully hard. Does that mean, therefore, that no matter who you are as a Christian, you can never do vengeance against evil, punish an evildoer? 
No, because you know what? Some Christians are also called to be, for instance, police. <laughs> they have a calling by God to restrain evil and uphold duly legitimately passed laws. And therefore, even though the policeman is a Christian who in his own person as a Christian in his relationship to God, if evil is done to him, should say, I'm a Christian, I trust God will do vengeance on you. Therefore, I will not re react violently to you. I won't arrest you, I won't shoot you, I won't tase you, I won't do anything. What can I do but suffer the evil and pray to God? But here's the thing. God has also called him to be the one who avenges on God's behalf. And therefore, it would be a dereliction of his duty as a Christian who has heard the word of the Lord saying, go and be my instrument of vengeance, to not arrest the person who's actively stealing from someone else. In fact, let's turn to Romans 13, 12 really quick. The uh, end of Romans 12, just to bear this out. Um, the very end of Romans, verse uh, 17, I'll just read this quickly, where Paul says, again, in your relationship as the church to other people, this is your calling from God. This is how you render obedience to God. This is how God does his work of redeeming the world through you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Even goes so far as to say, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and this goes to where you say, this is really hard to do. If your enemy is hungry, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a very strong but very clear statement God is saying. Don't take vengeance on your enemies. Don't hurt them. Try to stop them that way. In fact, when you see them in trouble, help and support your enemy. Even if they have just gotten done doing you a wrong, go and do them a right and a good. That is your duty as somebody who is subject to Christ, who suffered all things at the hands of evil men, dying while praying for their salvation and affecting their salvation by dying for them and then giving the means to call them out of their evil and into forgiveness by sending the apostles even to the evil people who killed him. If Christ has done that and called you to stand by his mercy and his future, that is your calling as a Christian when you're faced with evildoers. But then in the very next verse, by the way, notice he does say, leave room for God's wrath. Let God avenge. That's God's business, not yours. Your call as a Christian is not to avenge other people. By the way, this gets to one of the fundamental principles that we want to understand when we're talking about vocation. Not all, vo not all vocations share the authorities and the duties of other vocations. Being a pastor does not give me the same rights and responsibilities of being a father or being a governor. It only allows me to do what I am called to do as a pastor. As a parent, I am called to do what I am called to do as a parent. I am not called to exceed those limits or take on other roles um, that I'm not called to do. There, and this is kind of what Paul is saying. Don't take on God's prerogative of punishing evildoers. You're a Christian. Leave God's prerogatives to God. 
But then he goes on in the very next verses. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Okay, we've already read this, but I want to tie it into this now. As a Christian, part of your vocation, do no evil, do only good, even to those who hate you and hurt you and do evil. Leave vengeance to God. And then it turns around and says, by the way, those people who are in charge of the political order, they have their authority from God. They have a calling from God as his servants. I'll skip a couple of verses, and here's what they are called to do. Romans 13, verse 4. For he, that is this earthly ruler, is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear in sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. In other words, leave room for God's wrath. And where does God's wrath ordinarily get shown and done? By those who are called to exercise his wrath. Some people have the calling to exercise vengeance on God's behalf against evil. And they are the people who are appointed as governors, police, and so on and so forth. Vigilantism is completely outside of Christian thought. You have a, a proper call from God authorizes you to be an agent of his wrath. And when you have that, even if you're a Christian, otherwise called in your person to do no evil or violence or to avenge. As a person who has been called by God to avenge, then your Christian duty is to avenge. Does that make sense? This also gets to why, um, for instance, parents in the household are also given a limited authority to do vengeance on behalf of their children. That is to say, if uh, somebody breaks into my home and tries to kill my kids, if they're only trying to kill me, as a Christian, you know what I should do? I mean, obviously try not to get killed. But I'm not going to repay them evil for evil and try hard to kill them first. But, when my family is in danger, I am called to be the protector of my family. And that may mean I need to exercise vengeance upon those who are trying to destroy my family. Does that make sense? Obviously, when possible. <laughs> Leave it to those who are fully called and authorized to do that. But within the household sphere, these callings kind of overlap a little bit. Does that make sense what we're trying to get at here? These are kind of the paradigmatic callings, the institutions, the way God has arranged the world to exercise his care of the world. The church for the spiritual providence of redemption, the household for the physical providence of all good things are ordered around and from the family. And the political order, as you might say, an emergency measure to deal with the fact that we are now sinners who constantly do evil and violate our vocations, the vocations of others, and just violate basically all kinds of good order. So that in these three realms, God constantly works to preserve, to maintain, to enrich, and to redeem his creation. And the tools he uses to do it are people like you. You are the masks of God's redemption, of God's providence, and of God's wrath. <laughs> well, not all of you of God's wrath, but you get the point. Any questions about any of this? I just have a comment when you were talking about policemen and stuff you know, and the vocations and God calling you. I have a nephew who's a Christian, 
And when he was 16 or 17, he was mugged. Mm -hmm. No one was there. To right. And I mean, he was in a public place. He decided from then that he was going to become a policeman. Sure. Which he did. And he works for the county now. He's a sheriff in the county, for the county where he lives. I wouldn't want to meet the guy. <laughs> he's, six foot four, he's, six he's a big guy. But that was the reason. He wasn't that big when he mm -hmm. was mugged. But he did that. And, you know, God, I guess, called him to be a policeman. Right. Well, and, and very literally, God called him to be a policeman. Not only, and it's important to say, well, I'll say a couple of things. It's amazing how God uses all of these circumstances in the world to move people into the callings that he has for them. Um, through something like a mugging, he's given, he moved him to the calling of police officer. A horrible event that God was able to work for the good by bringing somebody to exercise God's vengeance in the world and hopefully restrain to a certain extent that kind of behavior of others in the future. Um, it's also worth saying that uh, like when we're talking about calling to the ministry, I don't know how well you're acquainted with our theology of the call to the ministry, but um, there's a very heavy distinction we make in that calling between the internal and the external call of God. The internal call of God, some people put all the weight on that. Um, our church body puts almost no weight on that. I feel like God wants me to be a pastor. Great. Maybe God does. <laughs> The only way you'll know for sure is if you actually get the external call when a congregation actually calls you. Otherwise, hate to say it, God didn't call you. Um, same kind of thing with your nephew. It was your nephew, right? Right. Um, he felt that internal calling. And maybe that was a call from God, maybe not. Who can tell? Um, but obviously, he received the external calling from God, whereby he was made a police officer. And thereby, that is now his official calling. The reason I say this is sometimes we, we, we think of what we're meant to do entirely in terms of how we feel. What we feel we're good at. What we would think we would like to do. What we wish we could do. Vocation is a lot more concrete than the messy things about your internal movements. Those no doubt have a place in God's plan to bring you into your vocations. Pro one problem is, the devil is really good at messing with your internal emotions, too. <laughs> and he is not the only one at work in the world, and he is able to, and he is one of the big causes for how vocations break down, is he calls people away from their callings. The concrete, actual, external relationships they actually have. For instance, the devil sweeps into a perfectly good marriage, where God has clearly, by the virtue of a wedding, called a husband and a wife to a lifelong commitment towards the well-being and love of one another. And the devil comes in and says, but boy, don't you feel like you're really called to be that lady's love? <laughs> and now, the internal call I feel to be happy, to be fulfilled by this person, diametrically opposes the external God of, call of God that I actually have by the fact that God has put me in this wet married relationship. And now my internal call who knows who it came from? In that case, clearly it came from the devil. <laughs> because it's asking me to violate the external call God has given me. Um, which also is to say, um, a little side note here. Vocation is also one of God's primary weapons against the devil. 
Um, the devil who works to disrupt good order in the world and to bring people both away from God, faith in God and also away from God's good gifts, um, typically by, keep, by, call, by leading them and calling them to misuse the gifts, to neglect the duties God has given, um, by proper call, faithfulness in your vocation, what do you do except destroy the work of Satan? Do you know how much good, solid parents can overcome even the worst destructions that it's, uh, the devil might work in a teenager's life? It is fascinating how much teenagers can come back from some terrible things if and when their parents remain faithful, solid parents. That's not like the cure-all. It's just to say vocation is God's primary war front not only in sustaining and providing for creation, but also in his warfare against the devil. So in a very real sense, if you want to oppose the devil, not just be faithful to God, but oppose the devil, be a good parent, be a good wife, be a good worker. For by such things the devil is overthrown. Um, anyway, we are, we're way past time, so we'll uh, finish up with this a little next week before we move into our next part. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever.